Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the podcast from P-Town. Hope everybody's having a good week again. Hopefully the wind in the background doesn't distract too much. It's really blowing here tonight. And I hope everybody liked the episode that I did on Friday of the Great Pyramid of Giza. That was a pretty fun episode to research and to do. And I'm going to continue on with the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World uh, for a little bit. Till we can get through all of those on the Friday episodes anyhow, not on the Tuesday ones. Not a whole lot of news to talk about. Our hearts go out to all those that were killed and injured and whatnot in Boulder, Boulder Colorado. That's a, sure a sad thing that happened over there the other day. So our hearts and prayers go out to all the families out there that were affected by that. But anyhow, this week we're going to be covering Gamal Abdel Nasser Hussein. And he was the second president of Egypt. Egypt hadn't been a country, an actual standalone country for all that long, and he was the second president there. He was born on January 15th of 1918, and he was born in Bacos, Alexandria, Egypt. So Bacos must be a little suburb or something of Alexandria. His father was named Abdel Nasser Hussein, and his mother was Fahima Nasser, which all those names mixed in there together. It must be some cultural thing where they take on part of the parents' names or whatever. But his father was a postal worker, and his his mother's family, there wasn't a whole lot about them, but they were just uh, said that her family was from Malawi, which there's some actually pretty nice rock that I've um, made cabochons and stuff from there too. His parents were married in 1917, and as you see, he was born in 1918, so it didn't take them too long to start popping out some kids. He also, he had two brothers, and the family, they moved to a place called Asyut in 1921, and then they moved to Katatba in 1923, and his dad had a job running the post office there. And while they were there, he started school, and it was a school for the children of the railway employees. And he continued school there until 1924, but then uh, at that time he went to live with his uncle in Cairo, to I think to get kind of a better education. And while he was in Cairo, he, went, he attended Nahasan Elementary School. And while he was away living with his uncle, he had always exchanged letters back and forth with his mom. And then all of a sudden, in nineteen or in April of 1926, the letters stopped coming back from her. He'd sent her some letters, but there weren't any coming back. And so he returned to Katatba, I think, that summer. And he find out that his mother had died giving birth to his third brother. It kind of obviously really kind of upset him that nobody had really told him about it any sooner than that. But And then also his dad went on to get remarried before the end of the year that year. So both of those things kind of hammered him pretty good and I think it kind of strained his relationship with his dad for a few years afterwards with all that happening but then in 1928 he moved to Alexandria to live with his maternal grandfather and while he was there he went to a place called Aturin Elementary School and I think uh part of he was going to live with his mom's uh grandparents or his mom's parents I guess rather than his father's but then he left that place in 1929 to attend a private boarding school. But then he came back and lived with those guys again. And 
went to the Ross L10 Elementary School. And so he kind of bounced around from school to school for a while. But he also, he began working with his dad in the Postal Service in Alexandria. And if you look at the timeline, he was only like 10 or 12 years old at this time. But it was also here in Alexandria where he got involved in political activism. And he was involved in a, it must have been some years afterwards, he was involved in a demonstration. And he wasn't aware of the purpose of the demonstration, but he ended up getting arrested for the night. And then his dad came out and bailed him out the next day. And it kind of sounds like what demonstrations are today. A lot of people go out there, but they don't even seem to know what they're demonstrating about. It just kind of creates a big mass of people and everybody wants to join in. Then in 1935, he led a student demonstration against British rule, and they were trying to end the colonialization by the British. And this is kind of what has fueled his fire for years, and what is pretty much a lot of this podcast is about is his hatred for the British colonial uh, colonialism that was going on there in Egypt. But th- during this demonstration, two people were in the demonstration were killed. And when the police opened fire on him, and he ended up receiving a graze to the head from a policeman's bullet. But luckily, it didn't cause any damage to him. But he was so involved in his political activity in his growing up years that he only attended 45 days of school in his last year of secondary secondary school. So he ended up having to really cram and go back and whatnot. But he finally received his leaving certificate in, I think it was around 1936 is when he received that. Then in 1937, right afterwards, he applied to the Royal Military Academy, but he was initially blocked due to his record of anti-government protests. They did some background research on him and found out that he'd been involved in a lot of this, and so they didn't want him in the military. So instead, he enrolled in the King King Fouad University Law School and attended that for only a semester because he, after one semester there, he quit. And he tried joining the military academy again. But this time going in, he figured he needed a WASTA, which is someone who would basically vouch for you. And he was going to go after somebody with some clout to try to help him get in. So he was able to get a meeting with the Undersecretary of War for Egypt. And the guy's name was Ibrahim Kerry Pasha. And this guy agreed to sponsor his application and so Late uh, 1937, he ended up finally being accepted into the military academy. And so once he got in there, he met a guy by the name of Abdel Hakim Amir and a more well-known name of a guy by the name of Anwar Sadat. And both of these guys would be important when he becomes president later on. But he graduated from military school in 1938, and he was commissioned as a second lieutenant, and he was stationed at Mankabad. And here, he and his comrades, uh, Sadat and Amir and all the other guys, they were discussing their dissatisfaction with corruption in the country, and they were wanting to uh, try to topple the monarchy there. That wouldn't come for quite a few years. In 1941, he moved to Khartoum, Sudan, which back in those days, it was a part of Egypt. I didn't know that. But he was only stationed there for maybe about a year, and then he returned to Egypt in 1942, and then by May of 1943, he had gotten a job as an instructor at the military academy. So 
he went from not even being accepted in to becoming an instructor there. But while he was here working as an instructor, his distaste for the British colonialism ended up growing more and more. It started taking up more of his time, and he began to form a group of young officers who supported some form of revolution in the country. They didn't know what they were going to do yet, but they wanted to do something. They continued meeting and whatnot and uh, going and having their little meetings and stuff. And then in 1948, he got he was still in the military, and he got his first battlefield experience in the Arab-Israeli War. And in May of that year, King Farouk, he sent the Egyptian army into Israel. And while they were in this war, he served as a staff officer of the 6th Infantry Battalion. And he noticed that the, pretty quickly actually, he noticed that the army was unprepared, and on July 12th, he ended up becoming lightly wounded, but he was able to work through it. But to make matters worse, in August, his brigade was surrounded by the Israeli army. So they appealed for help from the Jordan Arab Legion, but those guys said they weren't coming in. But Nasser's uh, brigade, they refused to surrender. And during this time, Israel and Egypt were finally able to reach an agreement. Part of the agreement, it ceded Fallujah to Israel. And this was the area where those guys were holed up at. So they were end up being let go. And then after the war, after his time of battle in the war, he ended up returning to the military academy. And about the same time he returned to Egypt was this, the same time that uh, in Syria they were having a coup d'etat. And he saw the success and support of the people there and how uh, the people were backing the guys that were doing the coup. And so this kind of got him back onto his revolutionary pursuits again. And so he summoned and interrogated, or he was summoned and interrogated by the prime minister because there were suspicions that he was forming a group of dissenting officers and for like the last six years, but they didn't know that. But people were starting to kind of get onto him a little bit. But he had a great poker face during this and he denied all the allegations and he ended up being released. But then in 1949, uh, the group that he had formed, they were now becoming known as the Association of Free Officers. They didn't want, they weren't wanting very much. They wanted little else but freedom and the restoration of their country's dignity. They thought that being under the colonial rule and whatnot from Britain, that they, their country had lost all of its dignity. And at this time, he was elected chairman of the organization, organization but there were only 14 people in it at the time. So then in 1950, they, Egypt ended up having the parliamentary elections, and the Wafda party ended up winning the election, mainly because the Muslim, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood boycotted the election. And the Muslim Brotherhood was a big, big factor in Egypt at the time, and maybe they still are, I don't know. But by this time, the Association of Free Officers, they had about 90 members, and they are making accusations of corruption, which started bringing them to the forefront of the Egyptian political scene. So they did what all good groups do at the time. They ended up going underground, and they laid low because they weren't ready to move on the government. So the government was starting to notice them and whatnot, so they just kind of sunk back into the shadows again and were holding out for a later reappearance. So then in 1952, there was a confrontation between the British military forces and the Egyptian police, and this resulted in 40 police officers being killed. And then rioting broke out the next day in Cairo, which left 76 more people dead. And it was a sad story, but it ended the rioting really quickly. 
it didn't drag on for a year like our riots here do. But this was pushing NASA, Nasser to the edge, and he was getting really fired up by this time, and he published a six-points bulletin on how to end the British influence in Egypt. And so the revolution and stuff that they were ta- that they've been talking about for years was kind of now coming to the forefront. And so on July 22nd, they were ready to make their move. In one day, they were able to capture all the government buildings, radio stations, police headquarters, and they even captured a military base. And Nasser had told the British and Americans what he was going to do two days before the, before they made this strike. But they pledged, uh, the Americans and the British, they pledged to support King Farouk. So Nasser ended up having him exiled out of the country in the form of an honorary ceremony. So it was kind of, they were having him kind of ushered out of the country, I guess, more or less. Within less than a year later, in 1953, they abolished the monarchy, and the Republic of Egypt was now declared. So now Egypt was declaring itself as an actual country. And a guy by the name of Mohammed Naguib was named as the first president of the country. And around this time, the free officers had created and become known as the Revolutionary Command Council, or RCC for short. But shortly afterward, after Nagab took over, there was trouble brewing, and Nagab, he kind of started to distance himself from the RCC. He was pretty much a member of it there for a while, but they were kind of getting a little bit more uh, violent or whatnot than he wanted, so he kind of started to distance, distance himself. And then in 1954, he resigned from the RCC totally, which ended up putting Nasser in command of it. While he was... Uh, when he did this, he put Nagib under house arrest and became chairman of the RCC, as well as prime minister also. And people began to mutiny at this, and they wanted Nagib reinstated as the chairman, but the Nasser supporters quickly attacked the military headquarters where this mutiny was rising up, and they ended up putting an end to it. But then later that day, thousands of protesters showed up to have Nagib reinstated and Nasser imprisoned. And so only one of these things happened, and by March 4th, Naguib was reinstated. They weren't able to get Nasser imprisoned. But things weren't, were, between the two guys, there were still some uh, tensions brewing, I guess you'd call it. On October 25th, or 26th, 1954, there was a plot by the Brotherhood, the, remember the Muslim Brotherhood guys? Uh, they were going to try to assassinate Nasser while he was giving a speech. And the shooter, at the speech, the shooter got within 25 feet of him, and he fired eight times, and he missed all eight times. I think this guy got his shooting lessons from Stevie Wonder or something like that, because eight shots from 25 feet is pretty bad. And the crowd ended up panicking, but Nasser, he raised his voice and talked them down, and by doing this, he kind of became a fan favorite of these people. People really started listening to him then. So he returned to Cairo from Alexandria where he was given the speech and he seemed a bit angry, obviously, that uh, I think he knew that something was going on with this plot and he ordered one of the largest political crackdowns to ever take place in Egypt. And in this crackdown, he arrested thousands of members of the Brotherhood and he um, arrested a bunch of communists while he was at it. He had 140 officers who were, lo- who were loyal to Naguib dismissed. Eight of the Brotherhood leaders were sentenced to death, and Naguib was back under house arrest again. And this time, no one rose to defend him, and this made Nasser the leader of Egypt at the time. But he didn't have enough support to bring the, about the change that he was wanting in the government. 
he was wanting to do things really quickly and he didn't have the support behind him to do it. So he went on a cross-country speaking tour, but he also started telling the media that they couldn't publish things without government approval, which kind of starts, starts to sound a bit like the communist guys that he just got done arresting. Everything kind of had to funnel through his office or whatnot before the media could publish anything. And then by 1955, the RCC appointed him as their president pending the national elections. And I think to help garner the support that he had started, uh, or to get the support that he needed, he started talking to the Israelis, but he knew that they would never come to terms with each other. It was just more of a political move. Egypt was an Arab country, and Israel isn't, obviously. And then things broke down even further when the Israelis attacked the Gaza Strip. But at the time, Nasser didn't feel his military was ready to retaliate, and it kind of hurt his popularity a bit among the people. The people wanted them to move in there, but he didn't um, have enough faith in the military. But shortly after, Nasser started attending multinational conferences, and he became the voice for the Arab nations. And he also mediated talks between the West and the Soviets and uh, declared Egypt as neutral. So he was kind of working both sides, I guess you'd call it. And in 1956, they were drafting the new constitution for Egypt, and they created an establishment of a one-party system for the country, which doesn't sound like a good idea from the start. We don't even do very good with the two-party system that we've got. But it was passed, and almost immediately he did what so many leaders do and started getting rid of dissenters and appointing his supporters to high cabinet positions. So anybody that didn't like him or whatnot, they were out and his buddies were in. Shortly after that came the Suez issue which I'm not going to talk about a whole lot more because in the song, it uh, there's going to be a whole episode on the Suez Canal crisis. So moving right along, after the Suez issue, many in the Arab world started viewing Nasser as their leader. So all the countries over there were uh, kind of looking to Nasser. And even outside of Egypt, many countries were pushing pro-Nasser agendas and so this was obviously getting the U.S. kind of worried about what was going on. They were afraid of communism in the Middle East, and though he was opposed to communism, the pan-Arabism, er, pan which was coming about, was a threat. Anything that the U.S. doesn't really care for becomes a threat, it seems. But although the people, the people in the, uh, these different countries really liked him, his only regional ally was Syria, that was the only real government that stood by him a lot. And this was a relationship that he began to foster, and he eventually created the United Arab Republic in 1957. And the government, they, it was in turmoil in Syria, and the delegates were sent to Egypt to start immediate unification. And Nasser turned them down and because he was citing too many differences between the two countries. But then in 1958, a second group was sent, and he accepted on the terms that it would be a total political merger and he would be the president of this new Arab Republic. And everything, so they joined together and everything was going great to start, but by 1961 the Syrian dissension was mounting. The Syrians, they were noticing things were much better in Egypt than they were in Syria, and eventually they were able to break away totally and become their own country again. So they were noticing that even though they were all supposed to be one, the Egyptian side of things was looking a lot better than the Syrian side, so they just broke off altogether. So after the breakdown of the Union, Nasser seemed to have a bit of a nervous breakdown himself. He began to smoke more, and his health began to be, began to deteriorate this time. It only lasted a short while, it seems. He overcame this, and he was able to achieve a second term as president. 
and he was actually the only person running, which is pretty easy to uh, have a second term, and they figured that he got his second term uh, because all of his opponents were imprisoned by this point. So he promoted socialism throughout the country, and a few people close to him were saying he was becoming more Soviet-like, and a few of them ended up resigning, because if you remember the Soviet Union, it kind of started out as a lot of socialist things, and a few of them didn't like this, and so they ended up resigning from his uh, cabinet or whatever. And by 1967, the economy was starting to decline, and be, uh, they became more burdensome, which you can assume is going to happen in a socialist ideology. Everybody becomes dependent on the government for everything, and so the government becomes a burden upon the people. And so at this time, his appeal was starting to wane amongst the people. They weren't thinking he was so great. And then things really started to go downhill even faster when the Israelis kicked their butts in the Six-Day War. It was actually on four days into, or it was only four days into the war, and Nasser, he announced his resignation at this time. He wasn't going to stick it out the whole time if he had his way. But people poured into the streets rejecting his resignation, so the next day he rejected his resignation. He was back in the office, and then the war obviously ended the next day after that. Then for the next couple of years, he had worked to gain land back that they had lost to the Israelis. And as you know, those fights still continue today between the Arab countries and the Israelis. But that's kind of what he was focused on for the next couple of years. And it started to get that the people were happy with him again because he was getting some of their land back. But then on sep September 28th of 1970, the Arab League Summit was coming to an end. And Nasser, he had just escorted the last Arab leader to leave. Uh, from the summit and a couple hours later he ended up having a heart attack and he had died at 6 p.m. that night at the age of 52 and they said that Nasser's likely cause of death was arteriosclerosis varicose veins and complications from long-standing diabetes so he didn't have a whole lot of things going good for him in the health section his funeral procession though it was attended by five million people including all the Arab heads of state except for the Saudi king a guy by the name of King Faisal or Faisal, or something like that. And it was pretty, it was a very emotional uh, funeral possession. King Hussein and Yasser Arafat cried openly, and Muammar Gaddafi, he ended up fainting twice out of emotional distress during this thing. But shortly after, he was laid to rest, and that's kind of the end of the story for him. I know I skipped over a few things because, like I said, the Suez Canal is going to come up in a later episode. And I'm not really sure what I thought about this uh, Nasser guy. I mean, I think he tried to do some good things, but he kind of did like all those other leaders do, where they anybody that dissents against them is imprisoned or killed or what have you. So, I don't know. I guess you can make up your own minds on that one. Uh, you can always message me if you have any ideas. Go ahead and uh, follow us on Podcast from P-Town on Facebook, or you can follow me or DM me at P-Town Podcast on Instagram, or you can send me a Gmail or an email at ptownpodcast74 at gmail.com. And that's it for this one. We'll see you guys on the next one. Thanks a lot.